Hello, and welcome to This Thing Called Life, a podcast dedicated to sharing stories about acts of giving, kindness, compassion, and humanity. Your host, Andy Johnson, will introduce you to powerful stories about organ, eye, and tissue donation from individuals, families, and healthcare teams whose experiences will inspire you and remind you that while life is hard, unpredictable, and imperfect, it's also beautiful. We are so happy you're here. Now, let's join the show. Welcome to This Thing Called Life. I'm your host, Andy Johnson, and we are very happy to have you here with us today to learn more about donation and transplantation. I want to welcome our guest. With us today is Dr. Shimmel Shaw, and uh, Dr. Shaw is with UC Health and leads the liver transplant program there um, and does a whole lot of other different things. So I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Shaw so he can tell guests, tell you all a little bit more about himself. Welcome, Dr. Shaw. Thank you, Andy, and it's a pleasure to be uh, on this podcast, and I'm excited about the initiatives uh, that you're doing and, and uh, understanding more about organ donation and transplantation. I uh, run the transplant program at UC Health. We're one of the biggest programs in the country. We have a huge team that's invested in helping the patients of our community with end-organ failure, providing them with all aspects of care besides just the endpoint, which is transplantation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as the saying goes, it takes an army uh, to take care of even one person. And, and we experience that every day with the dedication and expertise of so many people that, uh, that I work with. And I'm really proud of, of how we've done over the years and, and where our program is headed in the future. So how long have you been with uh, UC Health? I came to Cincinnati in the end of 2012. So I've been here now for, this is my ninth year okay. here. How many liver transplants have you performed since you've been here? Our team has done about 750 wow. liver transplants since that time. Since basically about 2013 to now, I think it's about 780 is the exact uh, number, just because we keep a database, so I happen to know that number. Never would have imagined that that's where we are if you asked me back in 2012. So it's been a great ride. And... Um, the, the best part about it is we've been able to help so many people. Yes, yes. We're in the midst of this pandemic, which I know has had, a, had an impact on donation. Can you talk a little bit about how COVID-19 has impacted transplantation? So I think like a lot of things, the pandemic has been a, a huge learning experience. And when things started happening, we were all in... a a complete gray zone as to what this meant. And if you can understand that our patients are at even higher risk because they are immunosuppressed, they don't have an immune system to fight an infection. So we really didn't know what this all meant, except we knew that in Italy and in China, people were dying. Mm -hmm. And so you can imagine if their immune systems are depressed, then they probably can't fight the COVID-19 infection. And um, what we were learning in the beginning of March, middle of March, towards the end of March, was just anecdotal stories from friends and colleagues around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, And then around this country, especially in New York City, when it first started happening, 
to try to get information about what this all meant. Mm-hmm. And from my perspective as a leader of the program, there's a bunch of things that have to be considered. Mm-hmm. Number one is it's safe for the patients to undergo surgery, transplantation, and then care for themselves afterwards. And then number two, which is a little bit kind of under the radar, but did become a prominent factor in the media uh, as the months went on is, what about all the providers? And what about the folks that are working to take care of these patients? Are they gonna be at risk? So what we did was we basically held off on things in the initial week or two to try to learn what was happening. So roughly around March 13th, for about a week, we kind of shut things down unless it was absolutely urgent. Mm-hmm. And ironically enough, in liver transplant, it's a lot of life or death. Right. There's no and, dialysis. There's no... Yeah. Right. And there are folks that without a transplant in the next 24 to 48 hours will die. And that week, we happened to have a couple oh. that were admitted to the hospital, were very sick. And I felt that the only way that we were going to save them was by transplanting them. Mm-hmm. So we moved forward and transplanted two or three people that week. Wow. In the midst of chaos that was going on around the world and trying to understand what would happen. We went ahead and did it while we were spending time with everyone in the hospital and everyone on our team working on protocols and coming up with algorithms as to if we do do transplants, what do we do? So we got those in place very quickly uh, as a team. And that includes working with providers from all different experiences, nursing, infection, lung doctors, obviously surgeons, heart doctors, anesthesia, uh, getting everyone together and making protocols. But those first few transplants that we did, they actually did just fine. They didn't get infected. We obviously were taking all the precautions. And then we monitored what the rates were like in Cincinnati, in Ohio, in Kentucky, in Indiana, which was where a lot of our patients come from as well, to try to understand what was happening. Was what was happening in New York and Michigan or Detroit happening here? And it didn't seem like it. Mm -hmm. Rates were very low. And patients were still coming in that were sick. So after doing those first three or four, they did well. We had our kidney program kind of on hold because they can get dialysis. We shut down our living donor program completely. And we also shut down seeing patients that didn't have to come to the hospital. Okay. So if you didn't have to come to the hospital, we didn't see you. And we primarily went with a telehealth approach where we were all seeing patients primarily by video. And believe it or not, it worked really well. That's what I've heard. I've heard there's been a lot of success with telehealth and they're, they're looking to do more of that now. And I'm a big telehealth guy. Mm -hmm. So I was already in tune with all of this, but we initiated a lot of our care through telehealth. And then we also, we behaved a little bit differently, but have learned so much from some of our normal practices. So for instance, when we made rounds, only one or two of us made rounds. Mm. We met together by video conferencing, discussed all the patients that were in the hospital, and then the surgeon on call, maybe one of the residents, and then maybe a physician assistant joined Mm -hmm. us on rounds and just two or three of us just rounded versus today I just finished rounds and there were, I think, 13 people rounding with me. Mm -hmm. Pharmacists, Mm -hmm. students, residents, transplant fellows, 
liver doctors, kidney doctors. So it's a big team, but we shortened down our team and just changed our practices. And believe it or not, it worked really well. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so after about a week or two, we actually said, you know what? The rates are low here. We have protocols in place in terms of testing, things like that. UC Health was extremely supportive of prioritizing my program and allowing our patients to get rapid tests done. And we resumed doing liver transplants. Okay. And we've been doing liver transplants at about the same rate since March. Okay. Wow. Wow. So I understand that when COVID hit, there were a few programs around the country that actually shut down their, their, they just weren't doing transplants at all. Have they resumed transplants? Do you know? Yes. And so many of them are friends and there were people that I was talking to, to get an understanding of what was happening. And they were advising me on what to do and what not to do. And those were in cities like New York, Detroit, New Orleans, those are the kind of areas where we, those programs were shut down. Uh, the hospitals were just in, inundated with COVID positive patients. And so you can't possibly do transplants. Right. And we were learning a little bit from them, but it never actually happened here in Cincinnati. Right. Right. And I know that we were really preparing, you know, for that kind of rush of COVID cases. And they were looking at Duke Energy Center as potentially being a place for patients um, to go for additional beds. And fortunately, it never got to that point. But um, it really did seem like there was a lot of strategy and just really kind of figuring out, you know, how do we get ahead of this? So, but thankfully, I think the cases have, haven't been what we thought they'd be. Mm-hmm. So also this year, um, there was another big change with respect to liver transplant, and that was the new liver allocation policy. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and then also speak to how that has impacted or affected affected your program or the program here in Cincinnati? Yeah, so nationally, we have adopted a policy of sickest first. And that's because we don't have enough livers for everyone in the country. And there is no doubt that there are different allocation rates around the country, meaning there's more donors in certain parts of the country for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. In the South, and even where we live here in the Midwest, there's more donors than there are on the East Coast and the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And there are differences in how sick you have to be to get a liver, depending on where you live. And that's not really how the national policy was written in the 1980s when we started sharing organs and things. So we spent, and when I say we, uh, those of us that were on the national committee and I was on it, spent about six years constructing a policy that was that seemed fair that would work for everyone. And that's why it took six years because there was a lot of fighting back and forth and debate and um, should organs stay locally. And so what's happened now is that we are sharing organs with wider, what's called acuity circles. Mm -hmm. And so I have a sick patient, for instance, right now, and I'm getting organ offers as far out as 500 miles for, uh, for this patient because they're so sick. And so that's actually a good thing for this patient. Whereas when you're really sick, you want access to as many organs as you can get and you want the best organ possible. Whereas before, that wouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. So I do think there's many positives. For us here in our program, our transplant rates really haven't changed. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. We have been able to keep our um, our volumes and our outcomes similar. We are flying a lot more and getting play, getting organs that are from farther away because that's how the allocation system is. And so it is more expensive, for instance, mm-hmm. for our hospital. But I think in the end, it's probably better for our patients. And so the um, the allocation system has been um, has been a lot of change and adjustment. But but we are already kind of used to it being a big program. And, uh, and it's been working out very well for us. Okay. Well, that's good. That's good that that's favorable and it's going, it's beneficial for the patients here waiting uh, for the life-saving liver transplant. Are there, I, I understand there's a clinical trial going on and it, it sounds like it's kind of like a, I'd liken it to being like a kidney pump, but for livers. Could you talk a little bit about that? It sounds really, really cool. <laughs> yeah, so we are trying to understand, and, and we don't know much about it, but what happens when you take a liver out of someone's body, store it in ice, package it up in a cooler, fly it 200 miles back to Cincinnati, reopen it, clean it up, wash it off, and then put it into a new person's body. Mm-hmm. There is so much in that process that we don't understand. And because of that, sometimes really disastrous things can happen when we put that liver into um, a liver transplant recipient mm-hmm. that's already very sick. Mm-hmm. And so in a, in, in a way to try to preserve the liver function better, mm-hmm. we have created these, uh, these pumps. And what they do is we connect the liver to tubing and special solutions that kind of pump the liver continuously while it's traveling while we're doing, uh, while we're getting the old liver out in our recipient and about to put it in, there are warm pumps and there are cool pumps or cold pumps. And we were involved in the only U.S. trial with the cold pump, what's oh. called a hypothermic perfusion pump. And our center actually did the first uh, transplant with the mobile cold pump uh, in the country. Really, we were really proud of that. Yes, wow. and we enrolled. Uh, close to 40 patients in that trial. And the pump is probably the wave of the future and where we're going to be heading in a few years for all cases. But we need to get these things FDA approved and learn more about what we can do, what we can't we do. But the the main idea behind the pump is not only preserving the liver function and keeping the livers as pristine as possible in terms of cell death and things like that, but also potentially being able to use organs that we weren't able to use before because we can repair some of the damage done to them. And that's what our colleagues in the UK have done uh, with the pumps over there. We're just right now still testing them on normal livers before we move on to the next stage. Uh, But this is a really exciting area of our field. And and I'm just excited to be part of that trial uh, because I think this is the future for liver transplantation. Wow. Wow. That, that is very, very interesting. It, I'm always in awe. Um, I think that's why I've been at Life Center so long. It's just things have just, they continue to just develop so quickly and change. And so many people are able to live because of all these advancements. So I think that that's awesome news. Um, so what's, what's the evolution of the transplant of organs from patients who may have um, an extensive medical history. So you may have a potential donor who has hepatitis or something like that. 
how has that evolved since you've been doing this work? We have been using more and more organs that five, seven, 10 years ago, we never would have considered. Organs are getting older, as you said, more medical problems. And even now, we're doing things like giving people hepatitis on purpose. Mm. And so a hepatitis clearing, positive donor and transplanting yeah. into a non-hepatitis recipient. Yeah. Oh, five, five years ago, no one ever would have thought that was possible. But our drugs and our medical therapies have gotten so good that we give them hepatitis on purpose. And then we treat them once they're a little bit better, usually around two or three month mark. And again, I'm so proud of our program here. Uh, we probably have the largest experience in the country in people that don't have hepatitis at all. So we're giving them a, a disease on purpose, treating them, and they've done really well after the transplant. Wow. So what would you say to that patient who's waiting um, for a transplant and they potentially could receive one from a hepatitis uh, positive, hepatitis P, B positive donor, and they've got reservations about that. What would you say to them? I say to them what I say to a lot of patients, which is if, if I needed a transplant or my wife needed a transplant, I would take it. I think it's a freebie. As long as the liver's normal, we do all the biopsies, uh, we make sure the livers are fine, but the treatments have gotten so good that the risk is actually becoming less and less of any major problems. And with our experience, what we do is we just quote the patients what our experience has been right? and the actual data from here. Mm-hmm. And so I know that that's legitimate. And now that we published it, it's even more legitimate, but I just publish, I just tell them what our data is and, and here's how it went. Maybe we did 30 and 29 out of the 30 did great or 30 out of 30 did great. And I think that's reassuring for the patients to hear that not only do we have the experience, but here are our results. Right. And uh, there's nothing that I can really fabricate about those things. That's um, It's just giving them kind of the ups and the downs. And if they don't want it, it's okay. Right. But it's my job, as I look at it, to provide people access to organs and to transplantation. And that's probably my number one job is giving people the opportunity of knowing what's available and what's out there. And the analogy that I use to patients in the clinic is it's kind of like going to a supermarket. If you go to a supermarket, you want to go down every aisle. Well, if you say no to every other thing, then you're only going to go down one aisle. You're only going to probably be in the fruit aisle. (laughs) But it's my job to explain to them what all the other aisles have to offer and for them then to make an educated decision about what they want or what they don't want. And if they want me to make the decision for them, I'm happy to do that. Mm -hmm. But understanding that part of this is all understanding the access and knowing what the data is. And it's our job to make sure people understand it correctly. One of the things you said a little while ago was that organs are older, getting older. Um, I've heard that there are organs being transplanted from donors who are actually in their 80s. And one of the things I hear a lot when I'm talking to people is, I'm too old to donate. I've had this or that. Can you speak to that? I think listeners would really um, learn a lot just knowing kind of more what the parameters are. Age with the liver is an interesting thing. And if people have taken good care of themselves, even when they're 80, what we have found is the livers can be normal. Mm. And the livers will outlive both patients. Really? So a lot of it has to do with what other medical problems there are and things. But I think in 2020, I'm not sure how old, if there's an age limit. Mm -hmm. This is for 
for people that are going to die. For living donors, we have a 60-year-old age limit, but okay. for uh, for people, the liver just tends to regenerate and repair itself, which is what makes it different from kidneys. Mm-hmm. When kidneys start getting in the 70s, we start thinking, huh, man, it's getting old now. Uh, because with kidneys, they don't repair themselves as well. And I primarily only deal with the abdominal organs, so I can't talk about the heart or lungs. But uh, I think the liver is just in such an interesting and fascinating organ because it repairs itself and can keep going. Sometimes an 80-year-old organ looks perfectly fine for the right patient. Wow. I, I Again, I think just the modern medicine, I, I just think I find that amazing. And I think it's important for people to know that because um, a lot of times people kind of take themselves out of the process at a certain age and say, yeah, I don't want to be a donor. So, so one of the things that I, I hear a lot from some of your patients that volunteer here at Life Center is just what a great doctor you are. And I always get the feeling that as they talk about you, it's like you're in this fight with them, this fight to save their life. Can you talk about just the care and, and your, how, you, how you approach each of your patients? Because I tell you, you're the one, your name is the one that always consistently comes up. <laughs> it's like, Dr. Shaw, yeah. he's the best. So <laughs> I, what are you I doing? <laughs> I don't know. I, um, I love what I do. That's and important. as I'm as I'm getting older, I love it even more. Mm-hmm. So I've kind of grown into the role. I never thought I was going to be a transplant surgeon. What so made I, you choose that? I wanted to be a liver and pancreas cancer expert. Okay. And so when I did my training, it was advised to me to do a fellowship that also had a transplant in the training so that I could uh, be more facile with cutting out liver cancer and doing things because I had the skills of a transplant surgeon. And as I was going through it, I was like, wow, transplant's actually pretty cool too. I'll just do both. And I, even now today, I still do a lot of liver surgery, bile duct surgery, pancreas surgery, along with doing transplant surgery. So I, I do both still, but I've kind of grown into loving transplantation and loving the mission. And I think because I get the positive feedback from the patients. I don't know what other people would think, but I feel like I'm kind of a normal person and I can relate to what they're going through and, and, and I try to relate to their needs and, and their desires and their wants. And I just try to be normal with them instead of um, creating an air between the doctor and the patient and all that kind of stuff. So maybe there's that connection because of that, but more importantly, I just, I just want people to do well. Right. And we try our best. We're not always perfect. Right. But I think that patients know when your intentions are are good and your intentions are for them. So I always tell my team, doesn't matter what time of day it is, doesn't matter what holiday it is, if we're here to work and there's someone that needs our help, we're that's why we signed up for this job. Right. Well, I get the sense just in talking to you right now that um, you're very approachable. And I think sometimes in healthcare, patient and doctor, that that process or that that can be intimidating to a patient um, speaking to a doctor because they may say like, oh, I may sound dumb asking this question or I don't want to ask this. And I think it's so important that we have to advocate for ourselves. And we, you know, I think it's equally as important that, you know, you're able to kind of just speak to people in a way where they feel like what they're saying is they're being heard and and their opinion is valued. And I think we could use more of that in healthcare. So 
kudos to you for for approaching it that way. And I think that really is probably why your patients love having you as their doctor. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Thank you. I think that we, as a, as a field, we can learn more by talking to patients as people, right. as you say, and not looking at it as a case. Yeah. Um, we learn from the cases, but at the end of the day, there's a person there and a family. And um, it's important that we understand or try to understand what they're going through. It's not always easy. Right, right. So the other thing that I hear about you from the folks that I work with at Life Center on the clinical side is that you are an aggressive surgeon, aggressive transplant surgeon. That's always, that's the word I always hear associated with your name. Do you see yourself that way? Yeah, I guess so. I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I'm all about access. Mm -hmm. So I feel like there's the right organ for the right recipient. So someone else might not like that organ, but I might like it and might like it for a specific patient. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's kind of how I look at things. So we try to leave no stone unturned. Mm -hmm. And by taking that approach, we've been able to really raise the volume of the program because we've been look, we look at every organ with a fresh eye and, uh, and try to figure out, is there, is it any good? Is there value in it? Can we, can we use it Mm -hmm. instead of just saying, well, it's not good for this person. And then that's it. Right. Uh, providing access, I think, is is why we're here, and we need to be able to provide it for so many patients because so many people are dying on the wait list. Yes. So something else exciting happened this year, and, and that was the launch of the Living Liver Donor Transplant, Living Liver Donor Transplant Program at UC. Did, did you lead that? Mm-hmm. Dr. Quillen and I uh, both led it together. He was the inspiration behind really pushing for it since he's been here for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And we hadn't done it because we didn't have necessarily the expertise. We were growing our program as it was with deceased donors. But we've gotten to a point now where we've kind of maxed out what we can do with deceased donors. And we felt it was the right time to launch the Living Donor Program. And there's so much involved with it. We hadn't done one in about 20 years and it took us about a good year, year and a half to put this together. And again, I'm really proud of uh, everyone here at UC uh, that was involved with it because it takes, it takes an army of people to kind of put this together. And, uh, and it was a great, uh, our first transplant uh, went really well and it was a great day, but it was also great to see everyone celebrate uh, that day and having done it. it took so many people and, um, and so many different specialties and uh, providers involved and disciplines that uh, really just a great way for the institution to come together and say, you know what, we can do this. Mm-hmm. And I think we can do anything here. And that's what I've been trying to tell people since I've been here. Well, you definitely just, the the leadership that you show and, and what you do, and it, it's, it's, so evident that you truly love what you do and helping patients and um, working collaboratively with with other partners within UC Health and just to save more lives, which I just is so commendable. Um, and your passion is is very evident. Uh, so we appreciate what you do on behalf of Life Center, and I know the clinical folks um, just really enjoy 
um, being able to work with you every day. Is there anything else you want to talk about relative um, to your program that you see? No, I don't think so. Okay. And what would, so what would you tell a patient who's just at the beginning of this journey? They just found out that they are going to need a life-saving liver transplant. What, what do you say to them? Well, the first thing we do is we go over what the outlook looks like. How sick are they? What are their options? And how are we going to guide them to get to the endpoint, whether it's a transplant or not? And a lot of times it's not me. Of all the patients that come through the door, you know, a lot of them don't end up getting a transplant, but they might get the work from the social worker who can help them with their social problems or their psychiatric problems or our dietitian or our nursing coordinators to help them out, our hepatologists just to manage their liver disease and keep them stabilized. So we've developed such a nice uh, collaborative, well-rounded program that if you need a transplant, sure, we're here on the kind of at the last point, but we're going to do everything we can to figure out how to get you better without it, because it does have its own ramifications and risks. And if you don't need one, we're not going to do it. We're only going to do it if you need one. So it's not like going, going to a store and, and, and you're going for getting your brakes done and you're also going to get your, your muffler put in. Right. Um, we want to only do this if you absolutely need it. So a lot of this is a lot of legwork from multiple providers kind of weighing in and making sure that this is the right course. And I think that's what we're most proud about is the fact that we just got a lot of people with their own expertise working together to figure out what's best for the patient. Okay. So I have a few non-clinical transplant questions just so that our listeners can get to know a little bit more about you. So I'm curious, what do you, like, what do you do for fun? when you do have time to do something else. <laughs> I, um, my kids make fun of me because I take a lot of afternoon naps. I'm a napper too. I, yeah, get I love sleeping during the daytime on the weekends and things like that. So it's kind of funny. They, um, I play a lot of tennis oh, and good. I play a lot of basketball, uh, especially in the, in the wintertime, I play a lot of basketball summer. I play a lot of tennis. Uh, we're outside a lot. I have to say, I don't have a lot of, big hobbies per se. Mm -hmm. um, I'm kind of a boring guy in that regard in the sense that work between work and family and then some of the stuff I do with work outside of transplantation, administrative stuff, research, it kind of takes up a lot of my time, especially if I want to spend the rest of my free time uh, with my wife and kids and, and, and friends, for instance. So, but all in all, I think um, as I've gotten older and, and things, the work has been great. And then when I get home, I just want to relax and, uh, and do what's fun and, and, and enjoy time. And so things like tennis, when you can put away your phone and just play for an hour, hour and a half, has really been a great uh, release for me. Oh, good, good. What's your favorite restaurant here in Cincinnati? We are big fans of Dewey's Pizza. Which I know pizza here in Cincinnati is really controversial and everyone, what I've noticed um, is a lot of people don't like Dewey's, uh, especially native Cincinnatians. So yeah, they're roasted yeah, yeah. all the way. <laughs> yeah. I need to explore um, a lot of the other places and make sure that I've covered my basis, but uh, we like Dewey's a lot for pizza. And, um, and then we do like to go down to downtown Cincinnati and OTR and stuff and try some of the places down there. With the pandemic, that's been a little bit tricky with a lot of people and stuff like that. But um, but we enjoy eating out a lot and uh, going to different restaurants. And now we're always on the mission to find outdoor places 
And I'm wondering, I'm waiting to see what happens in, in the fall and winter when it gets cold out, what we're going to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so pre-COVID, what's, what's your favorite place to visit? In terms of? Like vacation, like when you get out of Cincinnati, where is it that yeah. you like to go? We are big fans of, honestly, we, we've been traveling really well since we've moved here. Mm-hmm. Uh, because maybe because Cincinnati is right in the middle. Uh, we used to live in Boston. Mm-hmm. and Boston was great for Europe. So we always used to go to Europe a lot, but since we moved here, we don't go to Europe as much. So we've been spending a lot of time maybe going to California, we went to New York a couple of times. I would say my favorite place, we've been to Hawaii mm-hmm. twice. Mm-hmm. And when we went, I said, I, I could go here every year. Mm-hmm. It was just paradise. Far away. Yep. Uh, and the and and the jet lag and all that stuff weighs on you, but um, well worth it. Do you have a favorite island there that you like to visit? Yeah, I'm still a big fan of Maui. Okay. Yeah, just keeping it simple, laying on the beach, yeah. just relaxing. Uh, it and is then beautiful. Some of the sights, and then seeing yeah, some of the sights. And, yeah. And the people are so nice. Just yeah. very easygoing. Any book that you're currently reading in all your spare time? I'm, I don't read much, but mm-hmm. primarily because I've spent a lot of time watching Netflix and Amazon and things like that. But I I am reading a book right now called In Shock. Mm-hmm. It's actually a medical book, but mm-hmm. it's taught me uh, it's taught me a lot. It's by um, Rana Audish, who is a critical care doctor. I don't know how old the book is, but it was recommended to me. But she got really sick, mm-hmm. and so the book is a memoir about a physician who gets sick and their perspectives on how they were cared for and stuff and. Like we were talking about earlier, it's it's opened my eyes a little bit about how to talk to patients and and being on the other side and what she felt and hearing the doctors talk about her outside the halls and things like that. Uh, so I'm in the middle of uh, reading that and um, and that's been quite enjoyable. Wow. Okay, that sounds really interesting. Well, Doctor Shaw, I really appreciate you taking the time out to um, just talk with me, and I think you gave our listeners a lot of great information and just insight into how how all of this unfolds and I, I do appreciate you giving the, your perspective as a as a physician um, as a a good human being just wanting to help people um, you know heal and get better and I just I appreciate all of the transformational work that you continue to do because you are really, saving so many lives and helping so many people right here in the community and, and, and beyond. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me and um, look forward to working with you more and more. So as we close out today's show, I'd like to take a moment um, to do our, I'd like to do an honor moment. And the honor moment is when we just take a minute to honor someone or a group of people who are helping others through donation. And today I'd like to honor Dr. Shimmel Shaw, as well as the entire uh, care team and disciplines at UC Health that come together every day to walk with these patients as they're fighting for their lives and helping them uh, get the services that they need. So thank you to Dr. Shaw, to the social workers, uh, to all of the other disciplines that participate in the care of these patients. So some other takeaways from today's episode with Dr. Shaw. Compassion is so important. And I think we learned that today in, in talking with Dr. Shaw 
um, and how he works with each of his patients and really tries to meet them where they are and tries to explain everything and listen. And I think it's so important uh, for uh, healthcare providers to listen to their patients and um, actively listen to them. Uh, I also thought it was very powerful um, as he spoke about this whole village concept and just um, every every part of the healthcare system um, that comes together to support a patient during transplant. Uh, I think that's really important to note. And also just, you know, I think just in watching how the uh, UC Health transplant program has grown uh, over the last 15 years, uh, it's evident that um, the physicians there take this very seriously and exhibit a lot of care, individualized care for their patients. So um, I want to thank them for all that they're doing on behalf of those patients in need of organ transplants. This episode is brought to you by LifeCenter. Are you interested in saving someone's life by becoming a living donor? You have the potential to help save and enhance the lives of others, those who suffer from chronic illness or the effects of traumatic events. Statistics have shown that a new name is added to the national waiting list every 10 minutes. You have the opportunity to help others and save lives. You have the power to donate life. By offering a kidney or a portion of the liver, living donors offer their loved one or friend an alternative to waiting on the national transplant waiting list for an organ from a deceased donor. Today, the number of living donors is more than 7,300 per year and one in four of these donors is not biologically related to the recipient. Go to Life Pass It On for more information. Thanks to Life Center for their continued support. Thank you for listening to This Thing Called Life. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your favorite podcast to make sure you get updates on all new episodes. And we would truly appreciate it if you would share, like, or give us a review to help us grow.